Hello there, and a very warm welcome to Des's Island Discs. In a hectic world, this is a little oasis of calm and nostalgia from our guests who choose pieces of music that remind them of a particular time or story from their life or career. Now, if you're listening on podcast, we cannot play the music because of copyright laws. But really, this is about stories. So let's hear them. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. Today we're going to hear the stories behind the musical memories of historian and broadcaster Dermot Ferreter. Dermot, not many, I don't know any other historians. Uh, how did that come about? Did you choose to be a historian? Did you want to be a historian? No, it wasn't that I made a decision that I was going to be a historian. Um, when I was studying history in school, I realised it was the subject I was most interested in uh, and probably had the aptitude for, you know. I had an intense curiosity about the past uh, when I was a child and I'm not quite sure where that came from. I think there were a variety of different factors. My grandparents were not alive when I was growing up. Um, When I was born, there was one grandparent alive, um, my father's mother, and she died in 1980. And I do think that contributed because I had an intense curiosity uh, about those missing pieces. You know, I remember finding... um, an old black magic box of chocolates. Do you remember those old black uh, black magic boxes? And there were a few clippings in it. Uh, And I would have found this in the 1980s when I was nine or ten. And the clippings were about the retirement of my grandfather, my father's father, who was the porter in Hayes Hotel in Thurles, the famous Hayes Hotel where the GA was established in 1884. And it was just about his 40-year career there. He spent all his working life there. He'd been born in Kerry and then had moved up to uh, Thurles following a brother who had moved up to work on the railways because there was nothing for them uh, in that impoverished part of West Kerry that they were in. Um, And he did talk in the piece. He was interviewed by the local journalist. He talked about his memories of the black and tan days. And and I always had uh, curiosity about graves and graveyards. I was drawn towards graveyards. Even, a bit weird for you. So <laughs> yeah. there were a few different things yeah. going on there. And my parents were very interested in the past. I think you're influenced by the bookshelves if they're there. You know, when you're growing up, uh, there were a lot of books in the house. Uh, my parents were very interested in the past and, and interested in politics. They were both school teachers and they were very active in the uh, trade union, the Irish National Teachers Organisation. Um, so I think those things uh, contribute as well. But what I liked, I suppose, was the degree of self-reliance, you know, that mm. you could go off and explore yourself, you know. And if you were intensely curious, you could follow up your curiosity if the books were there. Yeah. Um, and then you you develop an interest in uh, particular stories or particular individuals. And, and that you just build the different blocks then. Had you been born 20 years earlier, you would have been able to talk to a lot more people who were involved in massive moments in Irish history. Oh, there's no doubt about that. And even the people who were teaching me history, uh, I went into UCD in 1989, the people who were teaching me history there uh, who were studying the revolutionary period or researching that period would have had an opportunity of talking to the veterans. Um, Because, you know, that generation who who survived the the upheaval and the War of Independence and Civil War, uh, some of them lived into the 1960s and 1970s uh, and some of them were very keen to talk. Of course, some of them didn't want to talk Mm. at all. That was another part, but there were a lot of silences. Uh, But there was an opportunity to talk to them. At the same time, there wasn't a huge amount of archival material available for that earlier generation of historians. That was the big change. And that was how lucky we were when we started researching intensely in the 1990s because 
big state archives are opening up, private archives are opening up. So we had much more documentation to work with, mm. whereas they would have had that, that, that much more direct contact with the revolutionary generation. Yeah. In relation to that era, Dermot, though, the, um, the silence that you refer to and the discomfort and the, the divided families, etc., it was an extraordinary time, wasn't it? I mean, our, our recent history is amazing in many ways, isn't it, if you stood back from it? The level of divisiveness, the upheavals, the not just the upheavals domestically and what was going on, but what we, we were a part of 100 years ago. You know, I'd often have to say to students, this isn't just about Ireland. You know, we were part of a, a, an international upheaval, particularly that revolutionary decade, 1913 to 1923, uh, and what was being experienced internationally. You know, we had Irish versions of, of international questions and decolonisation and ultimately civil war. Um, and it was a very, very difficult period. But for many who were living through it, it was invigorating. Um, I mean, they, they suffered and they inflicted suffering. Mm. Um, but you see, this is the thing about idealistic youth. You know, when you're looking um, at what that generation went through, you do have to try and recreate some of the, the texture of that experience, you know, rather than reading backwards, you yeah. know. I mean, we have our own particular value judgments now and, you know, we have our own ways uh, of, of, of thinking uh, about how we operate our society yeah. and our economy and our politics. We've got to think of the options that were available to people 100 years ago. You know, what lights were they guided by? You know, what formed them, what moulded them, what made them? And it's to try and see that Ireland and that world through the lens of 100 years ago is the real challenge, you know. And say, for an example, just picking one apple off the tree, say Collins going to London and the reaction to him. And were, was everybody informed enough, you know, who had an opinion in rural Ireland and, you know, they wouldn't have had radio, they would have got newspapers occasionally, what how informed was everybody? Oh, well, this is the really interesting thing about the way people were mobilised around these big political questions. We have amazing photographs of the massive rallies that took place. For example, over the treaty, you're talking there about the mm. treaty, which was obviously such a, a high stakes issue um, at the end of 1921 and into 1922 and people trying to persuade uh, the two different camps yeah. um, as to the merits of their case and whether the treaty should be accepted or rejected. And it was a defining moment. But people were mobilised. People were reading newspapers. People were going to public rallies, were going to political meetings because that's the way they communicated. Now, some of that generation later realised how valuable radio could be when it came uh, in terms of addressing the Irish both at home and abroad. Uh, but that was what you had to rely on uh, in those days. Uh, you had to rely on gatherings of people, passionate oratory. And you can see these tiny specks of speakers on these makeshift platforms and then these hordes uh, yeah. of men and women. Uh, and of course, things could get very, very, very heated. Um, but that's a very... Uh, direct and passionate way of communicating your politics and your political ideas. And, of course, there was a very high readership of newspapers as well. And, of course, there were an awful lot of different newspapers at that mm -hmm. time. Yeah, it's amazing times. You're here to choose music as well, Dermot. And your, your first choice goes back to... You were in the Palestrina Choir in Dublin. I was an angelic choir boy. Can you not <laughs> believe that, Des? I was. I, I went into the Palestrina Choir in 1982 when I was 10 and I stayed there until I was 14 when my voice broke. Um, Ito Donovan was the marvellous director of the Palestrina Choir in those days um, and she was a young woman then a brilliant teacher and a brilliant uh, musicologist and I've very vivid memories of getting the bus from Dundrum into Hawkins Street the 44 or the 48A and then walking up uh, Connell Street up to Marble Street up to the Pro Cathedral um, it was a very intense commitment you know I mean we used to rehearse uh, and practice 
on Wednesdays we had Friday evening Vespers and then we had more practice after that we had the Sunday morning this was the full Latin Mass um, and this was um, about you know singing the music of Palestrina Palestrina was a, a 16th century Renaissance composer of sacred music it was difficult music it was challenging uh, but rising to that challenge uh, was an enormous privilege and we learned an awful lot not just about music but there was a, a strong sense of family you know and I still can smell the incense from Friday evening Vespers. It never leaves you. I remember when I got to college and I was reading an essay by John McGarton and he was talking about his time as an altar boy. He wrote a line, I have nothing but gratitude for the spiritual remnants of my upbringing. You know, that sense of, of, of belonging, uh, that there was a place for him. And I suppose I have nothing but gratitude for the musical remnants of that upbringing. Even though I wasn't religious, I didn't come from a religious uh, household. It was the theatre, the ceremony, the performance and the musical education you were getting and also that sense of people coming from all sorts of different backgrounds, the boys, the age that we were, um, and we were able to gel like that. It was an intense time commitment, you know, uh, particularly around Christmas and Easter if you're preparing uh, for a concert. Um, and all Ireland Sundays were big days uh, in, in the Pro Cathedral, you know, because people would come in on their way to the minor match up to Croke Park and they'd also be praying fervently uh, for their own side <laughs> or praying fervently that someone on the other side would get injured yeah. but I remember having to do the solo the responsorial psalm from the altar on an All-Ireland Sunday and, and that was always a biggie Big you know Jared yeah. Gillen who was a brilliant organ player uh, he, he was up in the gallery where the choir was and we used to have these kind of blue folders that we'd carry down to the altar and when I got onto the altar and I opened it, there was no sheet oh, in the folder. And I remember blaspheming silently <laughs> from the altar. But Jared Gill managed to uh, save me by ensuring that I was on key. And the piece we're going to hear now? This is uh, Cantate, Cantate Dominum. This is yeah. by another Italian composer, uh, Giuseppe Petoni. This is the kind of music that we used to sing. It's one of the pieces we used to open uh, with when it came to public performances or concerts. And again, it brings me right back and it'll give me the flavour of the kind of song that we used to do. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. That's Cantate Dominum. The choice of today's guest historian, Dermot Ferreter. Dermot, you mentioned the church there. You mentioned John McGarren. John McGarren, as a teacher, I think, might have lost his job uh, because of his books and the church didn't approve, etc. The church and the recent history of the church in Ireland will be looked at in, in 100 years' time uh, closely. I mean, the, the dominance of it and how it affected society. That was extraordinary, yeah. And when I look back on the 1980s now, I can see... Uh, that that was a period still of intense public devotion. You know, I mean, mass attendance rates in, in, in Ireland in the 1980s were still over 90% in many parts of the country. Um, but there were not a lot of fault lines beginning to appear. You know, I mean, if you think of all the debates that were going on in the 1980s and all the scandals, uh, there were debates about contraception. There was a big liberalisation of the contraceptive laws in, in, in 1985. Uh, and I remember that controversy at the time because it found its way onto the Sunday newspapers that would have been sold outside yeah. uh, the pro-cathedral. Those things uh, were going on. But the level of revelation didn't really come until the following decade. The 1990s really was the decade of, 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 of revelations um, about deep, dark, difficult uh, secrets and abuse of power. And ultimately, the, the, the long story of the, the rise and fall of Catholic Church power in Ireland will be centred on that question uh, of, did they have such a monopoly of power that inevitably they abused it? 
which led to a complete loss of credibility on an awful lot of issues they would have pronounced on. And when you're a child in the 1980s, for me, you know, a lot of this was, was extraneous, you know. Um, you know, we, we weren't necessarily focused course, uh, yeah, yeah. On, 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 on what it meant in terms of a, uh, an increased pressure around secularisation. But I do remember the Pope visiting in 1979, uh, and the, you can talk about the fervour, almost a national giddiness around the visit of Pope John Paul II. But when I look on it now with my historian's cap, I can see that that was actually a last-ditch effort to, to try and stem the flow of secularisation. Uh, and ultimately, it didn't work. And what I'm wondering, though, Dermot, is, is there a period of time that has to pass before you can really look and draw conclusions? I mean, are we too close still to look at the 80s and 90s? Oh, absolutely. And, and I mean, I was trained under the 30-year rule, as they call it, you know. Is, yeah. uh, and I mean, it's not... It's not uh, set in stone. Yeah. But the idea that if you want to have perspective, you do need to wait for a generation uh, to pass. And, you know, when the National Archives Act was introduced in 1986 to make state papers available, it was decided that a 30-year rule would be appropriate. Some people are trying to get closer to a 20 or even 15-year rule. That was the British model, was it, we took? Yeah, yeah. you know, and, and I mean, we were, uh, yeah, looking at what had been done uh, in Britain, but also what was appropriate for us, you know. Uh, and if you're releasing sensitive material that is crashing into current affairs... That is not a good idea. There have been a lot of controversies in, in recent times about material that's recorded and when it might be released. Mm -hmm. You know, is it for journalistic purposes or is it for the long perspective, yeah. the historian's perspective? You, you have to be very careful about that and distinguish between history and current affairs. But it's never an exact division, you know. And as we've seen in, in recent decades, you know, history can continue to intrude uh, on current affairs. Uh, but you certainly do suffer in terms of objectivity and, and balance and perspective and nuance if you are far too close to something. Studying history, wars, loss of life is an inevitable part of it and your second musical choice is very powerful in, in this sense, isn't it? Well, I grew up in a house with an awful lot of music. Um, it was, I mean, as you know, there wasn't much spare cash around in the 1980s, even for those who were lucky, like I was, in that our, my parents were employed uh, as teachers. Uh, but there was one extravagance allowed, uh, and that was a good record player yeah. uh, and, and good records. And it was a really eclectic collection uh, in my house. Um, a lot of Irish music, but also a lot uh, of Beatles and of Bob Dylan. But this Liam Clancy voice always stood out. You had to be very careful now of my father's needle on his record player. Like that was the greatest sin <laughs> in the house was to scratch or damage that in any way. Um, but it was Liam Clancy that always stood out uh, because of the way he inhabited songs. There is great emotion and there's great history, there's great social conscience uh, in the songs. But this song, the band played Walsing Matilda, this is his version of Eric Bogle's song. Mm -hmm. Eric Bogle was a Scotsman who moved to Australia when he was very young. And he was in Canberra in 1971 and he witnessed the Anzac Day celebrations or commemorations. This is how Australia and New Zealand, yeah. New Zealand would remember their war dead. Um, and he was so moved by what he saw that he wrote this song. But it's also the era of Vietnam of the anti-war protests of the 1960s. My parents were part of that generation as well. Um, and, of course, Liam Clancy used to finish his concerts with the parting glass, mm. which my father always sang and, and still sings beautifully. So um, that song and the, the voice of Clancy uh, resonates with me and evokes an awful lot of memories. But it's also still a heartbreaking song mm. and a heartbreaking anti-war song. And when Liam Clancy sung this song in concert, he stunned the audience into silence. 
Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. That's Liam Clancy and the band played Waltzing Matilda. Uh, the great anti-war anthem, I suppose, chosen by historian Dermot Ferreter. Um, the power of his voice is, as you There was, and he, like, he was a very interesting character. I mean, he was a rogue and he had his troubles and he was very honest about them. But he was a huge influence on people like Bob Dylan as well in the early 1960s uh, in New York. And he had a mantra that he sought to live by, which was no fear, no jealousy and no meanness. What a lovely way yeah. to live your life. When you look at history, I mean, obviously, it's it's very important that you're impartial. That's your role, kind of, to analyse. Good luck with that. Yeah, I know. I was <laughs> going to say, are there are there figures in, in Irish history who you have a fondness for or you, you admire more than others or... Oh, there's no doubt about that. I mean, are you allowed you know, to admit to it? Or? Yeah, we're supposed to uh, strive for complete objectivity, and we should, and we need to take that very seriously. But you know, but in reality, you know, you don't live outside either of the era that you're in or the uh, documentation or the people that you're looking at. You would have strong views uh, about their characters. You do can you try empathise with them some of them, maybe. Of course, you can. You know, uh, and when you consider the difficult choices that people are faced with. Uh, at different stages, you know. I mean, even moving away from uh, high politics, you know, think about immigration, think about these themes that were so pervasive for so much of our uh, history. What was facing people in terms of whether or not they could have a viable future in their own country? And you can really empathise with that. Uh, I would have been very drawn uh, to cultural characters and artists as well. You know, people like W.B. Yeats or even indeed John McGarten. Uh, Yeats had an incredible ability to anticipate how something would look after the event, you know, and he was able to respond to these uh, turning points uh, in Irish history um, and put poetry around them. Um, and he was able to, you know, encapsulate... Terrible beauty is born. Yes, yeah. and, and, and encapsulate uh, that sense of, of convulsion, you know, yeah. uh, and of up, up, upheaval. So you're, I'm often drawn towards those uh, cultural characters, uh, but also those who made their own way without any of the benefits that we have in, in relation to access to education. James Connolly, for example, you know, self-taught, an extraordinarily deep and gifted uh, individual uh, and the range and the depth that he had, as well as the political passion. Mm. Now, that didn't mean he was a nice person. You know, if you read his personal letters to his wife and his whining and his self-pity, <laughs> you're not necessarily going to like him. But when you consider what he came from and the, the, the impoverishment uh, and what he sought to do and how he sought to put intellectual depth into it. Uh, you really can admire people like that. Have you a period in Irish history that you think is the most interesting? Is it is it the 1910s to 1920s? Or is there another period that strikes you as the most interesting? Period? Well, I started off with the 18th century. You know, I mean, the, the first big piece of research I did was on poverty in 18th century Dublin. I was always drawn towards social history. Uh, and again, that was also about Dublin being um, a city of contrasts, but also a very important city in terms of, of the wider empire. You know, the idea of Dublin as the second city of the empire, as a desirable place, as a fashionable place. And there were beautiful parts of Dublin, Georgian Dublin. Um, was it the second city of the empire? Well, I mean, that it, it lost its status gradually, you know, from mm. um, the uh, late 17th and into the 18th century. But it was considered a very desirable place to be. It had status. Dublin had status. Think of all the iconic buildings that we're mm. still familiar with today, like the Customs House and the Four Courts. You know, they're a product of that sense of, of Dublin having a strong 
sense of itself and of its importance and of those who are battling for, uh, say, political independence or their version of political independence in the 18th century. They wanted their own parliament. Yeah. They wanted their own parliament in Dublin and we have a beautiful parliament building there uh, in Dublin. So, you know, that heritage, that architectural heritage will give you an idea of the sense they had of themselves in the 18th century. So that was a very interesting period. But obviously in more... What was the times, poverty like? Just That was the contrast. What was the poverty like? Oh, it was rampant. Yeah. Uh, and it wasn't just impoverishment. There was a lot of violence as well. Uh, and we'd be shocked by the, the level of everyday violence and, and, and casual violence. But there was a huge vibrancy as well. There was a cultural vibrancy. You know, uh, culture... Theatre was taken uh, very seriously. There were uh, street performers. Uh, there was an awful lot going on. Mm. You know, it was um, a, a very busy and um, a very uh, lively city. Of course, there were those who were desperate uh, and there were institutions to cater for some uh, of those as well. So there was an awful lot going on. But I suppose in more recent times, I have been drawn towards the revolutionary decade. And because we have so much of a focus on the mo at the moment mm. on commemorating that revolutionary decade, uh, and commemoration is different from history, obviously. Uh, you know, commemoration is, is driven by what's going on at the moment. Uh, but we've had such an amount of archival material made available to us in, in recent times to help us try and, and, and understand that revolutionary generation. So what I'm focusing on, on at the moment is the, the Civil War period, which is quite a challenge. Why? Because you want to do justice to the complexity of the period, but because it was a civil war, there's been too much caricaturing. Uh, people still have very, very strong views about this. The way you could put it is that uh, every Irish memory is an accusation when it comes to the Civil War yeah, period. You know, yeah. it's difficult for people to step outside it um, and, and, and to view it objectively. Um, but that makes it a, a challenge worth right. taking on. And I do think now that 100 years almost has passed, we should be ready to confront it uh, for good or ill. Um, and, you know, there was an interview that Sean Lamas did uh, towards the end of his career. He was always so reluctant to talk about the Civil War and he'd lost his brother, Noel, who was mutilated and, and brutally killed at the end of the Civil War. And the way Lamas put it was, both sides did terrible things. I'd rather not talk about it. And he welled up. Um, and, you know, both sides did do uh, terrible things and they have to be confronted. Your final musical choice. This is Leontine Price. Uh, who was the first African-American superstar of opera. She's still alive today. She's 93. And she had such a regal presence and a technical acumen and a vocal beauty. And she recorded this album in 1960, in the summer of 1960, in Vienna with the Philharmonic uh, Orchestra. And people will be familiar with her version of A Holy Night, yeah. which has not been surpassed. But this is another track from that album. It's uh, Mozart's Alleluia. Um, and I don't think this has been surpassed either. There is nothing in the vocal world like Leontine Price. And this is something that needs to be listened to on maximum volume with your eyes closed. And hopefully we can all sing it together when we get out of this COVID hell. Oh, that's a nice way to finish. It's been great chatting with you, dear Miss Ferrer. Thank you very much. We'll play out with Alleluia. Leontine Price. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1.